came to see Mary. She was doing laundry, and then the angel just appeared and she was really scared. So Gabriel was like, Mary, you're gonna have, what? I can't, I can't say good. Mary, you're gonna have a baby. I, you're gonna have a baby and you will call him Jesus. And then Mary was like, I'm not gonna have a baby yet. I'm only a teenager and I'm not married. Then the angel Gabriel told Joseph that Mary is not lying. She, you are having a new baby. And so they met up. They went to Bethlehem, which was Joseph's old town. They ride a donkey. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. A camel. Oh yeah, a camel. She said, this donkey's fast. They tried to go to a hotel and they asked the keeper um, for a place to stay. The keeper said, we have no rooms, literally no rooms. <laughs> so Mary and Joseph walked away sadly, but then he said, the only place in here in Bethlehem that, that you can stay, stay is a staple. And then he just pointed the way and they followed. <laughs> when the shepherds were taking care of the sheep. Then they saw angels. The angels said, a new baby is getting born, who is king of the Jews. The angel were singing. Glorious. And then the shepherds said, I think we should go there and meet him. The second, I think, said, yeah, I agree with you. And the other said, yeah, me too. They had to walk through a bunch of grass and bushes, maybe have to camp out a night. And then the wise men heard about it. And then a star appeared. We should probably follow that star. It's pointing down to the barn. So maybe we should follow it. Maybe. So the wise men went to Jesus. They gave them gifts. A stuffed animal, like a hippo one, to have at home. Some diapers, and some wipes, and some milk, some shoes, some Jordans. Gold, Frank, and Latimer. And I don't know how I would survive in that barn. Too stinky, too crowded, and ugh. I think he probably pooped because the room was very smelly. Thank you for coming. He's adorable. He's gonna be our best friend. I love you, and you're the best baby I ever seen. There, I said it. <laughs> the new baby is gonna change the world. Yeah. This new baby is going to change the world. You know, the kids may not have gotten all the details of the family of Jesus correct, but they got the most important thing correct, that this new baby is going to change the world and is still changing the world all these years later. So these next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the family of Jesus. We're building strong families, so we're going to talk about the family of Jesus. And today we're going to look at Joseph. Next week we're going to look at Mary, and then Christmas Eve we'll finish up talking about Jesus. Now, as I was doing some research about Joseph, there are not many facts about Joseph 
recorded in the scripture. He is mentioned only in the events surrounding Jesus' birth. But let me tell you what we know about Joseph, the human father of Jesus. First, we know Joseph was a spiritual leader. Um, In Luke 2, it speaks of how he observed the holy days, he took his family to the temple, he made God the center of his regular life. He was a godly father, he was a spiritual leader of his family. Second, we know that Joseph loved his son. Um, It talks in Luke 2 also about how Joseph and Mary would would, uh, watch him at the temple teaching, and they were just in awe of him. When when Jesus uh, was missing, he was just fervently trying to find him. He loved his son. He didn't just disassociate or just provide for his son and come home and give Mary the money to feed the family. He loved him. He wanted to be part of his life. We also knew Joseph um, worked hard. He was a carpenter. Um, The scriptures would show evidence that Jesus had the trade of being a carpenter. And and learning how to be a carpenter doesn't take one mini session, right? It takes time and, and energy and sitting together and practice. And so we can assume that Joseph probably spent hours teaching Jesus his trade. But maybe the most important thing that we know about Joseph is this, that God trusted him. That God trusted Joseph. When God decided that the plan would be to send his only son into the world as a baby, God knew that he would play by human rules, and he needed a father and a mother. And God honored Joseph by entrusting him with this really great responsibility. If you're a parent today, you know that it's not easy to entrust your child to someone else. Um, Some of us have our time letting someone borrow our car for the weekend or babysit our cat, right? Like we just want to make sure someone is very responsible. But specifically your child, you don't just give your child to anyone. And God had to determine a set of parents, a mother and a father, who would parent the very son of God. And God looked down and he chose this man, Joseph, to raise his own son because Joseph had God's trust. The fact of that just just jumps straight off the page into my heart when I read it because this is the question that I feel like it beckons. Does God trust us? Does God trust you? If he can't, how can we become the type of people that God can trust? How can we become a person that, that God can look down on all of humanity with an assignment and look at us and say, her, I'll give it to her. Him, I'll give it to him. Here's the assignment that I have. I will give it to the person that I trust to carry it forward. You know, this isn't the only person in the scripture that God trusted. Uh, in fact, in 1 Thessalonians 2.4, Paul is speaking and he says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So Paul is saying, uh, you know, God trusted me with this gospel, and I'm going to go and make sure everyone knows about it. God knew that Paul could be trusted to spread the good news of the word, or he wouldn't have picked him. Can God trust us with the gospel? Can God trust us with it? Are we doing with it what God is asking us to do? In fact, in the scripture, it even tells us of a time where Jesus says, I don't trust those people. There's a time where he says, I trust Joseph, I trust Paul. But in John 2, we can look at a time that Jesus declares his lack of trust in the people. And what's happening in this kind of section of the scripture is Jesus goes to the temple, and in it he finds people selling cattle and sheep and exchanging money. And he gets really angry, and he drives them out because he sees their hearts And he knows they can't be trusted. And that brings us to John 2, 23 through 25. It says, Now while he, meaning Jesus, was in Jerusalem, 
at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Okay, so the people saw the signs and they're believing in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. So this scripture says that people were believing in him, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. You know, this passage, this scripture, doesn't sit real cleanly on our theological shelf, right? It, it doesn't really fit that whole, well, if I just believe and I'm good and this is great and, and I'm just walking with Jesus and nothing really has to change inside of me if I just believe in who God is. In fact, this question should make your head spin a little bit. You should be a little frustrated right now that that doesn't fit exactly into the box of what we often talk about or what we often even say about Jesus. The scripture says in multiple places that whoever believes will be saved. That is what the scripture says. But that word belief, we often just take advantage of. We don't think about what that actually means. In this scripture passage, John would indicate that there is such a thing as belief that is superficial. There is belief that even gets you to church week in and week out for years and years and years that is superficial. There is a belief that you can have in God that Jesus doesn't entrust himself to you because just believing God exists is not enough. Just believing he exists is not enough. John 2.24 would suggest that it's possible to believe and for Jesus not to entrust himself to us. And the reason Jesus would do that isn't because he doesn't desire to. The scripture says he wants all men to be saved. I believe that. I believe that he created us all and he wants us to come home and be adopted into the kingdom of God. That that is his desire. But it says that he looked and saw their hearts. And Jesus knew the faith that these people had in John 2 was just because they were seeing the miracles. That's the only reason that they believed. Jesus knew the people had, had decided to buy in what was popular and what was convenient for them. And Jesus knew that the faith that people had was somehow centered around how it would benefit them. If I can just get in with Jesus, I believe in you, are you going to heal my family? I believe in you, are you going to give me the money I need? I believe in you, are you going to do the things that I'm asking you to do? You, you know, some people have faith, but it stays only right here. It never reaches to our heart. I want to challenge you if, you, if nothing has changed about your spiritual life in a very long time, you might want to check yourself on this. Because faith that only stays right here and never gets to our heart is not the kind of belief that Jesus is talking about right now. They, they may, um, people that have that kind of belief may know a lot about Jesus, but they pick and choose what they want to believe and what appeals to them, and they only believe that. Because that just kind of fits where I'm at. That, that doesn't inconvenience me very much. That doesn't rustle me up very often. But I want you to know this morning, the scripture says that there's only one type of faith that Jesus is looking for. And this is the type of faith that allows any man, all men to be saved. It is open for everyone. But it is the one that recognizes that we are lost sinners. The faith that requires a repentance of sin a death to self, and a trust that Jesus only can save us from that sin. Only him, no other way. That is the kind of faith that the scripture is talking about it. This new baby is going to change the world. Those kids got it right. Those kids got it right because it changed the whole game. It changed everything about how we believe. 
And this type of faith creates a heart that Jesus trusts. Can he trust you? Simply being impressed with Jesus isn't enough faith. In John 3, um, Nicodemus is a, a man in the scripture. He was very impressed with Jesus. He, he praised him for all the signs and the wonders that he did. He even went out and told other people about all the things that Jesus did. He was very impressed in that. But Nicodemus was only interested in believing in Jesus when he had a problem and asking Jesus to swoop in and fix the situation. And Jesus replied to him, to be saved, the faith that saves you is not just being impressed or about coming to me when you have problems. It's about being born again. It's a whole different change. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. Simon, another example, he was a magician in Acts 8. He saw miracles happening, and he wanted to buy the power from the disciples. He believed in that power. He believed in the person that was doing it. He wanted to buy it because he knew that if he could get that power, he could begin to, to make all kinds of money because people would want it. But this isn't the type of belief that is saving faith. It's the kind of faith you have, a faith that goes beyond being impressed, a faith that goes beyond asking God to fix what's broken in your life, a faith that goes beyond what God can do for you? Is it the faith that you have that, that can just begin to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've got nothing to bring to you. I need you in my life. I repent of my sin. I'll change anything you ask me to. And God, when you do that, I will have a new life. I'll be born again. That is the kind of faith that is saving. And I believe that God decided that he could trust Joseph enough to send Jesus in all of his facets to his earthly father. That God knew that Joseph would accept Jesus as Savior, as King of Kings, as Lord of Lords, as Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace, and all of that, and so, so, so much more. That Joseph wasn't going to only accept Jesus for the one thing that he could offer, but Joseph was going to accept Jesus in all of his fullness and in all of his glory. Can Jesus trust you to do that? He trusted Joseph. Can he trust us? And so for my remaining time, um, I just want to talk about three things that I believe can make us trustworthy to God, all right? Three things that I believe can make us trustworthy to God. I love this. The word Joseph, the name Joseph, actually means increase. Say that to somebody next to you, increase. It actually means increase. God's so amazing at all of his intricacies. So we're going to talk about three things we can increase. One, increase our conviction. Increase our conviction, Okay, so how many of you know going to Walmart with any amount of children is challenging? Just any amount. Okay, all right. Going to Walmart with two toddlers. Two toddlers is not for the faint of heart. I have a four and a two-year-old. But going to Walmart with two toddlers in the middle of the first snowstorm of the year, game over, okay? That is what's happening, game over. And so I, there I am, I'm completing my grocery list um, after a tiring trip full of whining, begging, negotiating, uh, one meltdown, two bathroom breaks. Okay, so this is all happening. I get to the van, Whew, the finish line. I get the kids strapped in. My youngest, uh, don't judge me, she's 18 months old. It takes me 18 minutes to buckle her, okay, because she hates to get buckled in. Anybody else have? Okay, you don't remember, but it happened to you too. And so I'm already late to dinner, a habit my husband loathes, okay? <laughs> Where are you? Where are, what are you doing? Why is it taking so long? I put all the bags in the trunk. I'm soaking wet from the slush in the snow, and it's still snowing. And then I see it. Just the tragedy of my life, all right? 
there's a case of water on the bottom of my cart that I know I didn't pay for. And there it sits. And it was, I didn't do it on purpose. I mean, just in the chaos of everything, I simply forgot to tell the cashier. The cashier forgot to look there. And so I stand in the snow, just staring at the case of water. If you were there, you probably would have been like, what is she doing? And I'm just standing there like this. Kids are screaming. Kids are screaming in the, in the van. I'm going like this. Okay. And all my options are flipping through my mind. I could celebrate the fact that I got the water for free. Like, Surely Walmart, a multi-billion dollar company, they're not even going to notice, right? This will be great. Best water I ever tasted, free water, right? Just put it in my truck. Or I could just kind of ignore the fact that I remembered that I paid for the water, like even to myself, like this isn't actually, no, you paid for it. I mean, you know, like talking myself into it. You had to have paid for it. I mean, it's on the receipt. Don't look at the receipt. You know, I kind of like talking myself into it. I could leave the water on the cart. This was my most uh, genius idea. Leave it on the cart. So I don't take it, I technically am not stealing it, but then it's like sitting in the middle of the snowstorm unaccounted for, which is still not very honest. So time is ticking, I'm getting wetter, uh, I'm getting later as the moments pass. Um, that's why everything takes so long, Joel, because I have to think about all of it. So as simple and as silly as the situation sounds, I am in the parking lot of Walmart wrestling with Jesus about how, how deep do my convictions really need to be? Like, how big of a deal is this $5.66 rollback thing of water? How big of a deal is this? And I hear him so clearly say to me, well, your girls are watching. What do you want them to see? Who do you want them to be? Oh, so I unbuckle those stinking kids. <laughs> and I load them in the cart. And I bribe them with lollipops, and I text Joel and tell him I'm late because I'm working on a sermon illustration. <laughs> because I know, I know what is happening right now. And I push those kids back in, and I return that water, and I pay for it. Best water I ever tasted. And I make things right. I make things right. Matthew 1.9 says that Joseph was a righteous man. He was committed to things that were right. He followed God's moral law. He didn't believe in bending the law in that situation, even though it was sometimes very painful to obey. Joseph obeyed God's word. You know, I think it is, it is tempting often to dull the word of God, isn't it? it? Just to dull it a little bit, just so it doesn't hurt so badly. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. But so often we try to dull the edge of that double-edged sword. We, we, we try to water it down or ignore it or weigh the cost or justify it or talk ourselves out of it, what it really says, standing in Walmart parking lots. We, we have these moments where we just think, well, well it wouldn't be so, so bad. It wouldn't be so bad. I mean, I'm a pretty, you know, this works out pretty well. I do pretty good things. But we try to dull the word of God so it's easier to swallow. But I want you to know, church, this morning when we do that, it makes us weaker, not stronger. It makes us weaker, not stronger. A conviction is a belief that you will not change. A conviction is something that we believe that God requires of us. And what we must increase is the amount of convictions that we will not waver on and the depth of those convictions. The amount of the convictions and the depth of those convictions to the cost of following Jesus. After the angel explained to Joseph the unique circumstances of Mary's conception, Joseph went ahead and took 
Mary as his wife. He didn't have to do that. The culture was very intolerant of babies out of wedlock, but he decided to. You know why his conviction was? I obey what God tells me to do. So this is going to be really ugly. I'm going to get a lot of hate mail, but I'll obey what God tells me to do. Then they, they announce Mary is pregnant. Uh, they have to kind of change all their plans. But you know what Joseph says? So be it, Lord. What would you like us to do next? Because his conviction was I'll obey whatever God asked me to do. We have to increase our conviction if we want to be people that God can trust. All right, second, uh, increase our compassion. Increase our compassion. Um, so in Matthew 1, 18 through 19, um, Mary comes and, and she's pregnant and um, through the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, it says in verse 19, uh, was faithful to the law. He, was, he had a lot of convictions, yet he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, but he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph, right off the bat, has compassion for Mary. He could have easily thrown Mary under the bus. Easily. He could have denied it was his child and have very real legitimate grounds for divorce, but he takes the high road of compassion. You know, I am always beating this drum. Always. In fact, it's, it probably gets old for y'all, and that's okay with me. But almost every single sermon I prepare, I hear the Spirit of God in my heart, almost every single sermon say, I will not stop reminding us of the truth that we need to be people of mercy, that God wants to mature us to the place of an unoffendable heart, that God wants us to be people who have compassion and mercy on each other, even when people have hurt us deeply. You know, biblical love protects and shields others rather than making them pay. That's what biblical love is. Sometimes I believe our badge of honor is how we, like, I don't take junk from anyone. I'll just block them on Facebook, right? <laughs> like, we kind of have this, I'm, I have this really hard line. Like, that's, that, yeah, I, I'm a, I'm a no-nonsense kind of person. But the Holy Spirit would say, increase your compassion, let me remind us today and let the Holy Spirit of God remind us today, there is no weakness in forgiveness. There is no weakness in forgiveness. It takes great strength and dependence on Jesus to forgive. In fact, the strongest, most honorable thing that Joseph could do and the strongest, most honorable thing that we can do is dish out the grace and mercy and be compassionate and to increase our compassion. You know, I know that Jesus was the son of God, and so he learned his compassion from God, but I also believe that Jesus probably learned his compassion from his earthly father. That why Jesus was so tender for children, or why, why he was so tender for the sheep without the shepherd, is probably because he watched his father be that way. He watched his father be so compassionate to his mother, and so compassionate to other people. These two concepts, convictions and compassion, tie so tightly together. They, they work hand in hand. Because here's the thing, convictions without compassion creates distance in relationships. If you try to impose your conviction on someone without compassion, you'll do more damage than good any day of the week. Any day of the week. If you come up with like, well, this is what I think and you should think too, and you're wrong, turn off that radio right now. Not, not what that conviction is. But compassion, if we just swing all the way to the compassion side, then we dull the truth. And we say, well, it, oh, that's okay for you. That's okay for, that's, I mean, if you think that's okay to do, go ahead and do it, right? Because we don't want to like, confront anybody about the truth, so go ahead and do it. But when you have conviction and you have compassion and you can put those two together, it's a delicate balance. But as we wrestle through it, I believe we can become people that Jesus can trust, when we have convictions that will not move, but compassion to extend those to other people. 
All right, lastly, increase our courage. Increase our courage. Now this one, this one. You know, there is no biblical record of, Jesus, of Joseph's death, okay? So nowhere in the scripture did it say when Joseph died. But the scholars speculate because Joseph was also not uh, mentioned anywhere around his crucifixion or his resurrection. There's a lot of talk about Mary. She's there, but no talk about Joseph. And so scholars speculate that he died somewhere between when he was 12 at the temple and before the baptism of Jesus when he was 30. So somewhere in that range. And if the scholars are correct, this means that Joseph never lived to see Jesus fulfill the prophecy of him dying on a cross for the salvation of the world. He, he never saw it on this side of heaven. Joseph met three angels that told him what was going to happen. Three angels. That's probably three more than you'll ever meet in your life, potentially, right? Joseph met three angels that, that told him that Jesus would save the world and be a sacrifice for many, and he never, ever lived to see it. And that means his entire life he waited for the promise, he trusted for the promise, but he never, ever saw it. How do we respond in the waiting? How we respond in that time gives God reasons to trust us. God knew that Joseph never had to see that, and he could still trust him. What do we do when we believe for something that isn't here yet, when we're waiting for our child to reconcile with Jesus, when we're waiting for our finances to straighten out, when we're waiting for the diagnosis to be clear, for our spouse to change, for motivation to show up, for, for the job to get steady, for the health concern to go away, for, for a revival spiritually in our church. What, what are we doing when we're waiting for direction for a certain decision? I believe in the waiting. If we want God to trust us, we must increase our courage. We must increase our courage. And that word, that the word encourage actually means to inspire with courage, to advance confidence. I prayed that all week, that this morning I could just stand up here and advance our confidence as a church, to, to inspire courage in us in your personal trials, whatever it is that you're fighting with, and whatever our church is, is coming up against. We increase or add to courage by encouraging. Not only can you encourage each other, but you can encourage yourself. Self, stop talking like that. Preach it to yourself all week long. You can encourage yourself and you can encourage each other. You know, your third grade teacher probably told you this and then hopefully your mother reminded you all of your life, but what we believe and what we say about our situation affects the way we behave, right? If we show up and we're like, we're never gonna win this game, what's gonna happen? You're never gonna win the game, right? If you, if you show up and you're like, this relationship is never gonna work, the relationship is never going to work, right? They call that a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's what sociologists call it, self-fulfilling prophecy. If you decide you'll never be able to do it, you'll never do it. Today, I want to encourage you. We don't have to self-fulfill any prophecies because we serve a God whose every promise comes to pass. We serve a God whose every prophecy is right and true and will happen. Mary and Joseph were fulfilling prophecies about the supernatural birth of Jesus, and they didn't even know it. They didn't even know it. They were sitting right in the center of the will of God, and they did not even know that they were fulfilling the prophecies that God had set from the beginning of time. They were just showing up with courage, even when they didn't see. So the band's going to come. We're, we're going to close. Would you guys stand to your feet?
this is what I want to do for the last five minutes of our service. I know some of you have things to do. If you have to go, that's okay. But if you can stay, I want you to stay for these last five minutes. And I want to take this opportunity to add courage to you this morning. I I want to take this opportunity to inspire courage within you, to add confidence to you, particularly if you're in the waiting. If today you would come this morning and you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm in the waiting. Like, I am waiting for this situation to change. I am waiting for this new job so that my life isn't awful all the time. I'm waiting for more business so things can, can lighten up a little bit. I am waiting for my, my friend to, to understand the saving knowledge of Jesus. I'm waiting for my mom to forgive me from that, that offense. I'm waiting. And I really believe that this is for our church today. In this transition, we're in the waiting right? We're in the waiting. We're in the transition. And if you're a guest here today, I believe that God knew exactly when you would come. I believe that God knew exactly the day you would be here. And so don't tune out. This word is for you too. This word is for your heart too. I believe that God wants to encourage you this morning. And so if you're, if you're comfortable with it, would you just do your hands like this? That's just a symbol of receiving, of receiving these things. Eerie First Assembly, I believe that we don't need any self-fulfilling prophecies because we have a God who fulfills all prophecy. We have a God who has set before us things that we are supposed to do, and he will begin to do those things in us if we are just encouraged and know that he will fulfill those things. I believe that Christ in us is stronger than the wrong desires in us. I believe that we are growing closer to Jesus every day. We are anointed and empowered and equipped and called to reach people far from God. We are creative and innovative and focused and blessed beyond measure because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are family, tied together by the grace and mercy of who Jesus is. That we have deep convictions that must increase. We must increase those convictions. That we are wildly compassionate. That we will fight to have unoffendable hearts that our words and thoughts and imaginations are under the power of Christ, that we wake up with purpose and direction and meaning every day of our lives, that this city needs the message of Jesus and we are commissioned to reach them, that God is greater than any offense we carry and he is our vindicator, that we can rejoice in suffering because Christ suffered for us, that the world will be different and better because we serve Jesus today that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives inside of us, that we are overcomers by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, that we are children of the one true living God, that we are ambassadors of the most high God, that we are free from the law of sin and death, that we are God's workmanship, doing good works which he has created and advanced to us to do, that we are the head and not the tail, we are blessed coming in and blessed going out, and that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind, and we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And what God has started at our church, he will be faithful to complete, because God never fails and he won't start now. And we can have courage in the waiting, because God is building more than we see. God is building more than we see. God is building more than we see.
morning and we ask that you would increase our convictions. God, that you would increase our compassion, that you would allow those convictions and compassions to work together. And God, that you would increase our courage, even in the waiting. God, we love you and we give you praise. And it's in your name we pray, amen. You guys have a great week. We'll see you next week.